Snowman in the Morning on Tobacco Road Sports Radio brought to you by Beamer Tire and Auto Repair Centers. Now in three locations across the Triad, Greensboro, High Point, and their new location in Kernersville. Stop by for full-service car repair, oil changes, tires, and more. Beamer Tire and Auto. We care because we know you can go anywhere. A shop with a beating heart, not a bottom line. Well... This is the part where I have my Monday morning QB, Ryan Dunn, on the air with me, but unfortunately he was unable to make it this morning. So I'm going to fly solo and recap some of the best games of the weekend and give you a preview of what's coming this week. Browns and the Titans in Tennessee. The Browns own that game from start to finish. They did. They turned Tennessee away a few times, stopped them on fourth down on Tennessee's first possession. That kind of gave you the clue of how the game was going to go. 31-7 at half, 38-7, I beg your pardon, at halftime gives you a clue of how everything's going to go also. But then the Browns got outscored in the second half, 28-3. Just the Brown thing to do. But they held on, win 41-35. They recovered the last onside kick. And they moved to 9-3 and three on the year. Let that sink in for those of you who are familiar, like I am, with the Browns' past, especially this inception. 9-3 and three on the year. 9-3. and three. The Cleveland Browns, formerly of the AFC Central Division, now the AFC North, 9-3. This has got to be the most un-Brown season ever. And I got to tell you something. I'm a little bit happy for them. Everything else has happened. No, let me stop. They're playing good football. All right? Let me be real. When you have a running combination like Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt on your team and they're both healthy and they're getting yards in chunks, they're good. And Baker Mayfield has no longer regressed. What worries me, though, is I've seen the Browns go through this in a couple of games this year, the two losses to Pittsburgh and the loss to Baltimore. Why did they let their why did they take their foot off the gas pedal? It's like what Kansas City did in Tampa last weekend. It didn't produce any disastrous results, and that's a good thing. It didn't produce a disastrous result, which would be the most brown thing to happen, but it didn't happen. They held on. But what scares me is how they're going to finish the season. I hope my initial thoughts are proven wrong. Rams and the Cardinals, the Rams are indeed back in the winning column. I initially suspected the Cardinals to capitalize on the Rams being beaten by the 49ers last weekend, but it didn't happen. Rams win 38-28. Jared Goff seems to be Jared Goff again. The Rams offense seems to be in sync again. But I have a question about the Rams. Why have they been so inconsistent this year? Both times they lost to San Francisco, they bounced back with big games. And I'm talking about big scoring games. Be that as it may, the Rams did win and dropped the Cardinals to even status at 6-6. and With the Rams... I don't know. I'm not sure how the Rams are going to finish this year, especially with Seattle losing, and I'll get to Seattle in just a moment. But 
I don't trust the Rams. I just don't. Everything that is in my gut tells me not to trust them. Again, I draw upon the two losses against the 49ers, a beat-up, injury-laden, shorthanded 49er team. And the second loss of which last weekend in the form of a walk-off. Now, it is very possible that the Los Angeles Rams could make the playoffs this year. It's very possible. The question is, how far are they going to go? Are you really going to put your trust in Jared Goff to take you deep into January, if not February? They got lucky two years ago to get to the Super Bowl. I said it, and I'll continue to say it, because they had a beat-up running back with an arthritic knee. Jared Goff began to regress the last part of the season in 2018. We saw what happened in the Super Bowl against the Patriots, and to this man's eye, he's made no adjustments. Now, he's having a better season this year, but riddle me this. With all the success that the Rams have had this year, why didn't they beat San Francisco twice? when San Francisco was shorthanded? Why didn't they beat the Buffalo Bills when they came all the way back from 28-3 to down and took the lead and still couldn't hold it? It's games like that that make me wonder about the Rams. Packers and Eagles, the Carson, the Carson Wentz experiment is finished. And it was an extended experiment that should not have happened. I'll say it again. The Carson Wentz experiment is an experiment that went too far and shouldn't have happened in the first place. He had one good year. That was his first year where he went 11-2, and two, and then he had a gruesome injury that put an end to his season. Nick Foles takes over and guides them to where they were supposed to go in the first place, which was the Super Bowl. Foles wins the Super Bowl, wins the Super Bowl MVP, and what do you suppose has happened since that time? I will tell you what's happened. Not a doggone thing. Couple of division titles? Yeah. Have they returned to the conference championship game? No, they have not. Have they made it out of the wild card round? There you go. Jalen Hurts is getting his time, and I think Doug Peterson is canned after this year. I think Doug Peterson is finished after this season. Why I think Doug Peterson is finished, he had his run. He he had his fun. The Philly special will be the Philly special and it will always have a place in history. Yes it will. Packers deliver a 30-16 win. Aaron Rodgers is Aaron Rodgers. I still don't believe Aaron Rodgers is an MVP candidate. I'm sorry. I just don't see it. I don't see how. Well, let me discuss that in a minute. Now to the Giants and the Seahawks. And I'm going to say a couple of things that are going to really, really anger people. But I'm going to go ahead and say them anyway, and I've been consistent with this opinion. Russell Wilson is not an MVP candidate. Listen to me again. Russell Wilson is not an MVP candidate. Why, you ask? It's pretty simple. The first part of the season, and this has been true now the last six years, the first part of the season, Russell Wilson looks dominant. And I say looks dominant. The second half of the season, it's starting to happen again. The Seahawks are becoming too Russell Wilson dependent. And Russell Wilson cost the Seahawks yesterday. He cost them the game. Holding on to the ball too long. Sacked four times, unable to get out of situations he usually gets out of.
Russell Wilson is not an MVP candidate. I hate to say this, but he's not. It's the second half of the year, and Russell Wilson is uh, – they're relying too much on Russell Wilson. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. The second half of the year, Russell Wilson is being depended on entirely too much, which should speak to the sub-quality of Seattle's running game. Now, the running backs are healthy, but all season long, I've seen up-and-down output from the Seahawks' rushing game. I have not seen a consistent running game since Marshawn Lynch was the running back in Seattle. Carson's doing a good job, but he's not helping out Russell Wilson. There were a couple of times where he missed his block and the Giants were able to get to him. It's what I've said about quarterbacks that depend on rhythm. Take them off their rhythm. That's what the Giants did several times yesterday. And now Russell Wilson has come back to the pack. Matter of fact, let me go one step further before I do my Monday night preview. I have a candidate for a unanimous MVP this year. And no, it has not been Roethlisberger. No, it is not Russell Wilson. And hell no, it is not Aaron Rodgers. You know who my candidate for MVP is? Patrick Mahomes. Even though we had a little bit of a clunker last night, Patrick Mahomes is Patrick Mahomes. How can you not vote for Patrick Mahomes for MVP? Even though people want to put Russell Wilson in the equation, even though people want to put Aaron Rodgers in the equation, even though people want to put even people want to put Ben Roethlisberger in the equation. Hell, I was one of them. But in my mind right now, Patrick Mahomes is the unanimous most valuable player. And I'll say it again. Russ, uh, excuse me, Patrick Mahomes is the unanimous most valuable player. Unanimous. Do you see what kind of an effect he has on the league? Do you see what kind of effect he has on his team? You want to talk about a quarterback that's evolving right before our eyes. I'll put it in the form of a question. What did Lamar Jackson do last year that garnered him a unanimous MVP honor? Because Lamar Jackson has has had his growth stunted this year. It's been stunted because he can't throw the football correctly. He can't put it in spots where you need to put it. Not saying he can't throw the ball, but every ball does not need to be a fastball. You have to have a little curveball, a little bit of a slider, a little bit of a knuckleball, and Patrick Mahomes does all of that. Patrick Mahomes makes plays. Not saying Aaron Rodgers and and the others I've said said before him doesn't, but look at last year's playoff. Mahomes makes plays when he needs to make plays. And I don't trust any of the other candidates. I don't. I love Patrick Mahomes. Mahomes is growing right before our eyes. He's going to continue to grow right before our eyes. And I hate to say this. No, I don't hate to say it. I'm going to continue to say it. Okay? I may be wrong with this opinion, but it's an opinion and I have it. Patrick Mahomes is deserving of not just a regular season MVP award this year. He is very much deserving of a unanimous most valuable player because if any one player to me has stood out before in front of everyone else it is Patrick Mahomes it also helps when you have the legion of zoom behind you that's why no one wants to um that's why no one wants to actually Give Mahomes the credit because he has such a stacked team. 
The same can be said with Jimmy Garoppolo last year. No one wanted to give Jimmy Garoppolo credit last year. No one. No one. Because Garoppolo actually threw for 3,900 yards last year. Remember what Mahomes did last week to Tampa Bay? 455 yards. Mahomes is deserving of a of an MVP this year, and it should be unanimous. Will it be? Probably not. I doubt very seriously that Mahomes, A, will win the MVP, and B, will it be a unanimous MVP? I highly doubt it. They want to give it to Russell Wilson. People want Russell Wilson to win so badly. Riddle me this. What the hell has he done lately? If you look at that clunker he had yesterday against the New York Giants, you have your answer. Russell Wilson is no longer an MVP candidate. They're going to beg for him to get it this year. And at the start of the year, he was dynamite. He was. But now... He is no longer worthy. And for my buddy Philip Robinson, who I went to high school with, who is a Russell Wilson fanatic, every time he has tried to convince me that Russell Wilson deserves the MVP, I have been shown otherwise. Sorry, Dr. Phil. Not this year for Russ. Not any year for Russ. Back in the deuce. Beamer Tire and Auto Repair, now with three locations across the triad in High Point, Greensboro, and our new location in Kernersville. Beamer Tire and Auto offers full-service auto repair, all tire brands, free alignment checks, oil changes, and more. In Kernersville, check out the no-appointment-needed Quick Lube Shop. Check out their thousands of five-star ratings via Google and Yelp. They care because they know that you can go anywhere. So try a shop with a beating heart, not a bottom line. Beamer Tire Iron Auto Repair. Visit us on Facebook or at BeamRetire.com. All right, I've been putting this off long enough. Let's get to it. The NBA returns to regular season action on December 22nd following an abbreviated offseason. That's an understatement. One that saw the draft and the start of free agency compressed into the same week with, <laughs> my article in ESPN says, some uncertainty i say a lot of uncertainty with the pandemic ongoing the league is facing decisions about how to undertake a campaign outside the relative security of a bubble the nba circulated as i'm now reading from espn.com a 134 page guide about health and safety protocols last week but it has outstanding concerns to address now Here's what happens when a player tests positive. He will have to go through a series of steps before being able to play again. If he's asymptomatic, asymptomatic, he must sit out for 10 days from when first testing positive, then pass a cardiac screen, and finally work out alone in a team facility for two more days before being allowed to return to full team activities, assuming there are no issues. You understand this yet? Me neither. There's more. If a player is symptomatic, he must sit out for 10 days from when the symptoms subside, then follow the same path as asymptomatic players. What happens if an individual or team breaks COVID-19 protocol? Well, I'm glad you asked. There are potential punishments for players, staff, and teams that violate them. Protocol states that, quote, failure or refusal to comply may subject players and staff in tiers one and two to disciplinary action by either the league or individual teams up to and including warnings, fines, and or suspensions. Anyone who was found to be non-compliant may also have to go through the educational sessions on how on the importance of following the protocols and how they can protect themselves from others. Now, here's a question. Will games be suspended for positive tests? Much like the NFL, potential game suspensions or postponements 
will be reviewed on a case-by-case basis. NFL teams have tried to play through the schedule when only a handful of players test positive in an organization, but schedules have had to be altered in outbreak situations. Baltimore Ravens, hello. The NBA remains confident in its protocols, and I'm sorry for that sound. I haven't had any water yet. But it remains to be seen how it will handle the situation if several players on one team test positive at the same time. Thank you, Nick Friedel. The schedule will be different in a few different ways. Boy, that's an understatement. First, there will be only 72 games down from the typical 82. Normally, I would bark about this, but given the fact that we're in the midst of a pandemic, I can understand the reduction in schedule. While teams are scheduled to play at home and away against every team in the opposite conference, they will play only three times against each team in their own conference. Typically, teams play four games against 10 opponents in their own conference and three against the other four to the schedule in a moment. Second, in an effort to reduce travel, teams will play what can be described as baseball-style series against opponents where with two consecutive games in the same city against the same team. Fans will get a small taste of that during the preseason when there will be several repeat matchups between teams. You tired yet? Finally, rather than releasing the entire schedule all at once, the NBA is going to release it in halves. Half! Sorry, couldn't resist that joke. First, The first half games taking place from December 22nd to March 4th was released last week. And I'll go through that in a moment. The second half will be released about 30 game, after about 30 games have been played. This gives the NBA the flexibility to adjust to possible postponements due to COVID-19 issues. Will fans be at games? The simple answer is that decision will be made on a team-to-team basis. No fans will be permitted in several NBA arenas at the start of the season. Some cities will allow a limited number of fans at the games in which with all fans over the age of two required to wear face masks. Good move. The Memphis Grizzlies announced that the capacity in the FedEx Forum is expected to be roughly 20% based on socially distanced seating configurations. The Utah Jazz announced a plan to have a reduced seating capacity of 1,500 in the lower bowl and limited seating on the suite level. The Atlanta Hawks plan to have friends and family in the stands in the first weeks of the season and 10% capacity for their Martin Luther King Jr. Day game as the Atlanta Journal-Constitution reported, several other teams are in the process of determining what their seating capacity will be. The Golden State Warriors, Operation Dub Nation, plan to fill the Chase Center to 50% capacity, a proposal that included rapid COVID-19 testing for every person who entered the arena. That proposal was rejected by the San Francisco Department of Public Health. <sighs> are y'all are, are y'all confused yet? Yeah, I am too. I am too. Now to the games. How 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 do these games work? I I don't know. Here's the tentative schedule for 2020-2021. December 11th through 19th, you have preseason games. So preseason begins in 4 days. December 22nd through March 4th, the first half of the regular season. March 5 through 10, the All-Star break. March 11th through May 16th is the second half of the regular season. May 18th through the 21st is the play-in tournament. And then May 22nd through July 22nd is the playoffs. There are too many holes in this plan. And I know they're borrowing from the NFL model. 
And I am inclined to think, I'm inclined to think that there will be some postponements because there are teams coming out right now, including the Portland Trailblazers, like I uh, did in the headlines, that have players that have tested positive for COVID, players and staff and or staff members, and they're closing their facilities. What's wrong with pushing the season back to February so we can get this COVID-19 under control? I mean, I want to see basketball, sure, but I want to see it safely. More questions. What are players allowed to do on the road and how have traveling parties changed? Here's the answer. According to ESPN.com, in the past, there was no limit on how many people teams wanted to have along during trips. It was strictly a matter of how many they were willing to pay for and take on the road. Now, though, there is a hard limit of 45 people who can be part of the travel party. For some teams, that won't matter. For others, it will cause major headaches. While the NBA is clearly concerned about the threat of the virus as teams begin traveling, the league will allow players and staff to leave hotels for dining under specific circumstances, including outdoor dining, fully private fully private room dining in restaurants or NBA or NBPA approved restaurants that meet specific league criteria. The league and the union are putting together a list of at least three such restaurants in each NBA city. I like that idea. There are also further restrictions on the movement on movements at home. I beg your pardon, including people in tier one and two not being allowed to go to Go to bars, lounges, or clubs, attend live entertainment or game venues, or visit public gyms, spas, pool areas, or indoor or large indoor social gatherings that exceed 15 people. There are so many. Oh, my gosh. You know, the team that I feel sorry for the most, the Toronto Raptors, they're having to do what the Toronto Blue Jays did, and that's relocate. The Canadian government has put travel restrictions in place during the pandemic. And right now, it just isn't feasible to have an NBA team north of the border. The Raptors chose Tampa, Florida as their home for an indefinite period, which means they will play at the Lightning Place, Amali Arena. Other situations requiring a franchise to relocate will be handled on a case-by-case basis, such as the San Francisco 49ers, who have been forced to relocate because Santa Clara County slapped a three-week ban. And I've talked about that before, which means the 49ers are going to be in Arizona for at least the next two weeks because they got Buffalo tonight and they have Washington next Sunday. Or next Saturday, I beg your pardon. Hi, it is Sunday. It's the Cardinals game in Arizona. That's on a Saturday. That's the a day after Christmas. Teams and league officials, teams and the league office, I beg your pardon, read that wrong, are in frequent contact with local and state officials discussing protocols and seeking government guidance. So the hope is that a team won't be caught off guard by such a situation. Really? Really? So the team won't so a team won't be caught off guard by such a situation. Okay? Then explain to me the San Francisco 49ers. Explain to me the war against Santa Clara County. And it is a war against Santa Clara County because the 49ers in the midst of a win over the Los Angeles Rams had to relocate. They had to move everything and everybody about that team, and they had to find a place quickly. Bad enough there were no fans allowed in Levi Stadium. That part I get. But nothing has come out, at least as far as I've read. And if you've 
heard something, please put it in the description box if you're watching on YouTube or place it in the comments if you're listening on Facebook. Nothing has come out about what has happened except the rise in the COVID numbers that forced Santa Clara, Santa Clara County officials to slap a three-week ban and force the 49ers to move in the midst of a season with them still having a chance to make the playoffs. And if I'm the Toronto Raptors, A, I understand the 49ers' plight, and B, just like the Blue Jays, I'm a little pissed off that I can't play at home. I know a pan- I know it's a pandemic and we're in the midst of a pandemic and I get that and nothing is fair while all this is going on. I understand that. I understand that. I'm not completely void of empathy. And I won't be completely void of empathy while all this is going on. Don't get it twisted. But as an athlete, doesn't it just get on your nerve that you won't be able to see the home fans? Blue Jays, Raptors, hello. Hell, how the hell is the NHL going to handle this? Because half of their teams are in Canada. This is when I need to get Rob Peterson back on the show to explain this. Because I have no answers. All I can go is on my gut feeling. And right now my gut feeling is telling me that the Raptors and the Blue Jays are a little pissed off that they can't play in their home country. The league has an idea of which cities have the infrastructure in place to host an NBA team, but there isn't an official list of alternate cities at this point. Well, don't you think you need to get on that? You want to use the thing, you want to use the line, we're in the midst of a pandemic. Well, don't you think that should have come up? Don't you think that should have been handled? Matter of fact, let me pose a question of the day before I get Joe Serrera on the line here in North Carolina. My question of the day is this. If you're a fan of the Toronto Raptors or the Toronto Blue Jays, how angry are you that you will not be able to see your team play in front of you at home? I want to find out because I have a lot of friends in Canada courtesy of the great Rod Peterson and the Rod Peterson Show as well as the Squadcast with my buddy, Producer Clark. How many of y'all are mad as hell that you won't be able to see the Raptors or the Blue Jays play? Let me know an answer to that in the comments, will you? Joe Serrera after this. Hey guys, it's Desmond Johnson, and I want to tell you about Retro King, the number one sneaker boutique in the triad. Buy, sell, and trade large selection of new and pre-owned sneakers. Latest popular releases like Jordan, Nike Air Max, Air Force One, SB Dunk, Bomposite, Off-White, Adidas, Yeezy, including apparel by Supreme, Bait, Cause, Champion, and much, much more. And the best prices in the triad. Stop by today and check out their vast inventory selection, conveniently located at 1531 Haynes Mall Boulevard in Winston-Salem, beside Cookout, across the street from Walmart, Monday through Thursday, 11.30 to 6.30, Friday and Saturday, 11.30 to 7.30, and Sunday, 12 to 5. Give them a call, 336-999-7000. Follow them on Instagram, at underscore retro underscore king. That's at underscore retro underscore king. Always look your best. Shop Retro King, the cleanest new and pre-owned shoes around, period. Time to welcome to the program Joe Serrera, sports reporter for the Greensboro News and Record and also the Winston-Salem Journal. You can follow him on Twitter at Joe Serrera Sports. What's up, Joe? How are you, my friend? I'm busy, but it's a good busy. <laughs> it's a very good busy. We had a chance to talk before we yes. before we came on air, and I said we're in we're in sports media. We are perpetually busy. <laughs> yeah, or or we're unemployed, and I prefer busy. Yes, I I prefer <laughs> busy. I prefer busy as well. 
You covered the Stanford-Carolina A&T game, and Stanford traveled to Greensboro to play this game. How'd this come about? Uh, Stanford was supposed to play in the Maui Invitational in Hawaii. Well, that got moved to Asheville. And while Stanford was playing in Asheville last week, they played Indiana and North Carolina and Alabama while they were there. While that was going on, the county where Stanford University is located in California, Santa Clara County, locked everything down. So Stanford had, they would have had to quarantine for 14 days and no practices and no games until further notice. So they decided to stay here in North Carolina. Jared Haas, the coach at Stanford, is a former Roy Williams player and assistant. So they've been practicing at North Carolina's uh, Chapel Hill at the Smith Center. And they were looking for games. And A&T was uh, more than willing to uh, play. Unprecedented, a Power 5 school coming to North Carolina A&T to play basketball. That's the first time that's ever happened. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Love when I – Love when a plan comes together, as as I always say. Um, exactly. Late last week, the North Carolina High School Athletic Association released their breakdown of schools by classification. The moves will begin for the 21-22 school year. I'll start with this. What's different this time around? Two, two things, really. Um, the first one, the most simple one I'll go through first. In the past, the NCHSAA did not split the state into regions until they saw who was in the playoffs. Then they would equally divide teams east and west in each classification. Well, this time around, they decided, oh, no, we're going we're gonna to draw the line for east-west before we even start the process. And it's going to be – it basically falls on the eastern border of uh, – Rockingham County, Randolph County, and going south from there. A conference cannot include teams from two different regions. So what that did was it cut off the Alamance County schools, a lot of which were in leagues with Randolph County, Guilford County schools. It cut them off. They have to play in the east now, and everything west of there has to be separate in terms of conferences. They can play each other non-conference but they can't be in the same conference. That was the first thing they did that was very different. The second thing that they did was they classified schools by something called ADM, average daily membership, in layman's terms, enrollment. And that was basically the only criterion that was used. Well, this time around, they decided that wasn't simple enough with COVID-19. Let's make it more complicated. It's now a, a combination of that ADM or enrollment number how a school did in the Commissioner's Cup standings, which is an all-sports standings, over the last three years. And then a third component, which is something called an ISP, which is a score that looks at the socioeconomics of each school. Basically, a school that uh, kids who are on free or reduced-cost lunch and other factors, that's a factor in the score. So it's 50% enrollment. 25% 25% Commissioner's Cup score, and 25% this ISP score, which changed everything. And initially, it looked like some schools were going to go up or down that we didn't expect. And in the end, a few surprises in the triad over in this part of the state. But that was the big change. And it's a very complicated formula. You you have to trust their numbers. I don't know of anyone other than the ADM numbers and, and just figure them out. Why do you think they decided to add two other factors to this? Um, no, I, there's nothing official to, to say this, but from what I've heard from various coaches and athletics directors, there was a lot of unhappiness among Class 1A schools and even some about charter schools and uh, feeling like, other than in football, most of the charters don't play football. Other than in football, they felt like the charter schools had an unfair advantage over similar enrollments because they could draw kids from a larger area and, and other factors. And they complained enough that they wanted the one a bunch of the 1A charter schools kicked up to 2A. The few 2As that there are, Community School of Davidson and a couple of others, they were hoping they'd get bumped up to 3A. 
And they also have a problem with Charlotte Catholic being in 3A, and they kind of wanted them pushed into 4A. Now, Charlotte Catholic doesn't care. They'll play in whatever classification. They've got plenty of good athletes. They've got plenty of good coaches, and they've got great support. They're going to succeed wherever they are. But it was more, I think, from what I've heard, but none of this is from the NCHSA. This is speculation on my part that they were trying to push some of the charter schools up a class. They thought it would be fair. Thought it would be fair. What do you, th- what what do you think about the move so far as we grind towards the 2021 portion of the year? Um, I think they unnecessarily complicated things. I think with all that's going on with COVID nineteen, that I would have, if I'm the state association, and I'm not, I'd be them their job. It's not an easy job. I don't mean to to make it sound like they've got they've got an easy job. But I would have told the member schools, hey, whatever you're thinking, with COVID-19 and everything else that we've got going on right now, let's just sit tight and, and stick with the enrollment numbers, the ATM numbers for this realignment, live with and then we can we can talk in two years about revisiting it the next time around. I think they, they unnecessarily complicated things. And a question I have in my mind is, the board of directors of the NCHSAA is made up of superintendents, principals, athletics directors. And I'm thinking to myself, with all that they've got going on with COVID-19, they had time to come up with this complicated, convoluted formula? I, I, I don't get it. I don't get that part of it. I know they want to they try to be fairer to uh, the public schools in, in Class 1A that are competing with charter schools that can draw from a much larger geographic area. But I don't think this was the time for that. I think I think they they reached a little too far this time. But hey, I you know that's that's an opinion. Joe Serrera joining me here. Follow him online at Joe Serrera Sports. Uh, talking all things NCHSAA as we hopefully uh, grind toward a 2021 beginning to the uh, winter part of the season. How do you think? the triad conferences will look starting next year with all the changes they're putting in place. I hope that they, the state association and they're, they're going to send the first draft of conferences to the member schools next Thursday, December 10th. Uh, That's when, when we'll have, we'll have an idea of what the initial draft looks like. I think if they, if they go with, Class 4A, the way, a simple way that they can do it, you could have something very nice where you would have four Guilford County 4A schools. Right now, it's called the Metro 4A. You could have eight teams in that conference instead of five, which they had this last time around. Perfect fit there. On the western side of the triad, you could put seven Pike County and Davie County, which has been playing with those schools for a number of years in the Central Piedmont, make that an 18 conference. Everything fits nice and neat, no problems at all. Where it gets a little more involved is as you go down the classifications, 3A, 2A, 1A. I think, in, in my mind, and I'm just doing my own, I did my own projections. You can find them at our website, greensboro.com. I created, in projecting split conferences. Some people hate that, but I've got some conferences that have some 3A schools and 2A schools together and some 2A schools and 1A schools together. And the reason I did that was in one case, 3A and 2A schools, it was to keep the four Rockingham County schools together. Reedsville is in 2A, Moorhead is 2A, McMichael is 2A, Rockingham County 3A. Well, I put the four of them together with Northeast Guilford, a team that they play, and Reedsville, which is a 2A school. It looked like might be 1A at one point in this realignment, but it's 2A. You put them all in there, there's natural geographic rivals, teams that have played each other. It makes sense to me to do that as a split conference. Same situation in Randolph and Davidson counties. Randolph County, every school but one is 3A. All the others are 2A and 1A. Put them in the same conference. You have great rivalries. You have short travel. Keep them together. And it's going to be good for everybody. Same thing in Davidson County. You have uh, two schools that are small, Thomasville and South Davidson. Another place to put them. But everybody else in that co- that county is 2A or 3A. 
put them in one conference. Rivalries, uh, short travel, all those factors, like-minded schools, it's better for everybody. Those were kind of the highlights of the way I looked at it. But I think unless the NCHSA is trying to make things difficult, you're going to have two pretty sweet 4A conferences with a Metro 4A of all Guilford County schools and a Central Piedmont of all Forsyth County schools except Davie County, and they have rivalries with all of them anyway. There's a lot of potential for some really great conferences and really great rivalries, but what I drew up may not bear to what the NCHSA comes up with. It, it's, you know, I, I'm not in on that process. I just threw it out there because this is what I would do. Joe Serrera, reporter for the Greensboro News and Record and Winston-Salem Journal, joining me here on this program. Your thoughts on the association shortening the football season and reducing the number of state champions from eight to four. The reducing the number of games from 11 to 10, um, it will, it won't affect everybody. There are a number of schools. If they get to a state, they'll play the same number of games because they, the playoffs, the last time around, They've been subdivided into A and AA in each classification since 2002. But the last time around, teams in 1A and 4A, the top four seeds in each region, got a bye in the first round. Well, nobody gets a bye this time around. So instead of – you basically have 64 teams in each classification, but they're not subdividing them into A and AA. That part doesn't bother me too much what I – what I hear as a complaint from coaches of really good teams is that you're going to have fewer state championships. You're going to deny another kids on another eight team experience of playing in a state championship game at Keenan stadium in Chapel Hill, Carter Finley stadium in Raleigh, Wallace Wade stadium at Duke, BB and T field, I guess it's known as now or at, at Wake Forest. You're denying a few more kids a chance to experience a state championship game. But overall, I don't have a problem with it because all of the other classifications, there's only one state championship. The cutting from 11 games to 10, where that bothers me a little bit, and the state association said it was about safety, that they wanted to get in line with other states, have fewer games, that the risks of of injury in football are greater, and probably they are compared to most sports. But I think you're denying a bunch of kids a chance to play another football game, that 11th game, kids whose teams don't make the playoffs. I think that hurts a little bit. And the other thing that I I come back to, and athletics directors have told me this left and right, fewer games at a time when budgets are already going to get slammed because of COVID-19 from losing games, potentially not having fans at games, you're taking away another football home gate every other year for schools Mm -hmm. that is a huge blow financially and i'm not sure how schools are going to deal with that when they're already cash strapped when wake county is having to or decided to subsidize their schools to a greater extent for site county is probably going to look at doing that tuesday night everybody's hurting financially you're going to give them fewer games and it's not just the gate at a game and not just it's it's concessions and it's mm-hmm. all the fundraising that goes on at a football game. There's no better fundraiser for a high school athletic program in the school in general than a home football game. Right. The people at the concession stands are working for uh, their parents from other sports. They're fundraising, the booster club people, they're selling uh, schedule magnets. They're selling calendars. They're selling t-shirts. They're selling all these different things because nothing brings a community together like a high school football game. Basketball could be close in some communities, but nobody brings it all together, and you're going to lose that revenue from a game. I, mm-hmm. I, you know, if, it's been, if it hasn't been unsafe for the last X number of years, why now? Right. I, that part I didn't get either. Right. Those right. were the two biggest changes. I, I would have kept the 11 games. I could have lived with, with reducing the state championships. Yeah. Yeah, you live with, you, you live with one, but, um, you know, me just getting here and learning everything on the fly last year – I'm going to miss doing that 11th game, man. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to miss. Yeah, it's, you know, and it's, an, it's a non-conference game for teams. The one thing the NCHSA did do is that you you only got to play 10 games, or you only got to play 11 games. 
a non-conference game was a quote-unquote endowment game where a, a big chunk, 25% of the revenue went the gate went straight to the NCHSAA. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're only going to play 10 games, one of them still has to be an endowment game. If you're not going to play an endowment game, now you're down to nine games. Right. And that's, that's not – to me, that's really cutting back on, on opportunities for kids. And I, I think that that's what high school sports are supposed to be about. You know, yeah. I've, I've made a, my living covering it for the last seven years, but it's about the kids at the end of the day. And I think 99.9% of the coaches are in it for the kids. And mm-hmm. you're taking games away from them. You're taking experiences away from them. that. That part of it, I, I don't like. You said the best word, experiences. Experiences are being taken away with that 11th game being taken away and I so agree with you on that point just the I mean what if they scheduled uh, and I know a lot of schedules are going to have to be flipped around now but what if they scheduled a senior night game for that 11th game and everybody was looking forward to it at first I mean well I I think we're far enough out yet that that very other nobody's really scheduled much beyond this year. In a normal realignment cycle, they started about two years out. This year, everything got pushed back, partly because of COVID-19, but also because the NCHSA had a vote in January on potentially going to five classifications. And they right. were holding off to see what happened with that. Well, it got rejected. So and realignment got pushed back normally. In a normal free realignment cycle, schools would have known for a while now what conference they were going to be in, and they'd already have gotten those contracts for non-conference games set up. Nobody's had a chance to do any of that yet. Until next Thursday, or until Thursday, December 10th, to know for sure what conference they're probably going to be in, and then there can be appeals, so it could still change. And I think... I don't think it's so much that they've lost games that, that were already scheduled, but they're losing an opportunity for that experience. That, yeah. That's the biggest thing. Yeah, and that and that hurts me. As long as I've been doing this, that hurts me. That's Joe Serrera joining me here, talking things NCHSAA, and giving you all the updates on everything that's going on. This is going to be the first of a three-part series this week. Joe, an absolute pleasure to have you on, my friend. I hope to have you back. Same here. Same here. Thank you, sir. Always a pleasure. Got some more stuff for you, folks. We'll wrap it up going around the ACC after this.